Whenever I tell people too, and they say, oh, I don't know if I could be a photographer, I just ask them, have you ever spent more than two or three seconds looking at one thing? You know, like you really got to challenge yourself. When people say that they're not a photographer or couldn't do it, that's just the way that they're thinking about themselves. They're doubting themselves before they started. Welcome to the Flying Fruit Bowl, a platform dedicated to the discussion and exploration of art and the creative process. I'm your host, Ernest, and today's episode is the first part of a two-part conversation with the amazing photographer, Ryan Taylor. Residing in Canada, Ryan's work explores his inner emotions and often depicts desolate places that tap into the universal themes of isolation, uncanniness, and nostalgia. I had a great time talking to Ryan about his amazing work, and I really hope you enjoyed listening to this conversation too. Let's start where I start with everybody, is just uh, tell us a bit about yourself and how you became a photographer. Yeah, so I uh, got interested in about 2018. Uh, I, I followed a few photographers, didn't actually shoot anything. And then I started taking just random iPhone photos and downloaded the Lightroom app on my phone. and just had fun kind of editing a bit. It wasn't like serious, but uh, 2020, I finally got the money together and I bought uh, an M100 which is not the best camera in the world. Um, but it was a starter camera. I was able to justify it because finances were kind of what held me back. And it was 500 bucks. I used it for my job. Uh, so very easy. I could write it off. But uh, I switched to film like a month after because there was no viewfinder on that camera. And my only other options were to spend hundreds of dollars on a, another digital camera with a viewfinder or spend 20 bucks on a film camera that I could use after that. So that's interesting because I feel like one thing we don't actually think about <clears throat> is actually how expensive photography can be as just even as a hobby, let alone if you're doing it for a career. Yeah, exactly. It's uh, not cheap at all. That's and it's the reason I still use film. I mean, coming up with cash up front, there's okay. a lot of things that you need cash up front for in society these days. So it's kind of hard to throw thousands. Uh, at, I mean, God, even a vacation, I wouldn't be able to throw thousands out right now. Yeah, it's like a sacrifice you have to make financially in terms of like what you can afford to do and what you can't afford to do. And, it, and it's kind of interesting that you said that finance has held you back because I kind of, I speak to a lot of, especially photographers where maybe their finances aren't particularly great, but they still create work. And it's kind of like, it's interesting that even though you may not have the means to do things, you still create with what you have. And I, I you know, really appreciate that DIY kind of attitude and kind of like, how has that kind of helped you so far in, you know, kind of the work you've created? Yeah, so it's, it, film works well for me because of how uh, like how I'm paid and how I'm budgeting and how I do my finances. Uh, so paying you know money every now and then for film costs is a lot more palatable uh, for me. It's an easier thing to manage than spending thousands of dollars in any one month. Uh, if if digital cameras gave you an option to have like a, a one or two percent financing and stretch it two to three years, I'd probably be doing that instead. But uh, because of that, it forced me to do film, which has probably been a good thing because film has forced me to kind of learn more about uh, photography than I was learning with digital. Yeah, a lot of people I was listening to a few of your podcasts say that, you know, digital is better for beginners. I mean, I don't know if that's necessarily something I agree with because you can use your phone uh, all the time. Uh, but I find, you know, if you get one of these digital cameras, you're not going to be forced to learn about, you know, focusing, aperture, exposure. Uh, anything like that and uh, with film you don't really have a choice you get one roll back and you're like shoot I gotta I gotta go back to the drawing board now so that's actually a really interesting way of looking at it because I 
I'm definitely one of those people that I always say like digital is is quote unquote easier. It's a kind of it takes a lot of the guesswork out of photography, which can be a good or bad thing depending on the way you're approaching it. But like, so you know, if you could afford a digital camera, would you buy one? Absolutely. So I do plan to buy one within the next two to three years once my uh, finances balance out. Yeah. I'm sinking basically more money than I've ever had into a, a house. This is oh, part of the yeah. thing I'm renovating. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Like again, it comes back to priorities. Like if you've got a house to renovate, it's going to be a little bit more important than you buying a camera. You know, your priorities. Yeah. You know. They're going to be in a exactly. different place. So, you know, and not just that, like what you'll get out of having renovated the house is going to be a very different thing to buying a camera, you know? Yeah. It'll free up a lot of cash once, uh, like you can do a thing, you refinance a house, you pull the equity out. So yeah. I'll be able That's to it. do that pretty soon. And with that, I plan to buy, uh, I want one of the Fuji medium format cameras. So I'm looking at, I think it's the GFX or the GFX. Um, I think it's kind of interesting because I feel like a lot of people normally shoot digital because it's more, I, th- I think, in my opinion, like, I think film is actually more of, it's kind of more financially challenging because you have to spend so much money on film. Whereas in digital, it's just a one upfront cost. Whereas in film, it's a constant cost, no matter how much you shoot. I think it depends what someone's doing and what they're shooting. Um, so I like medium format because I get more depth of field choices. Uh, and it just it gives more like a 3D aspect uh, to the photos. And it's, it's, it's a challenge. It's definitely... I got my first um, RB67 rollback, and that was very, very humbling. Um, but it's something I want to do, especially with portraiture, because more options. And to get started with medium format, you know, fifteen hundred bucks will get you a Pentax 6.7 with a 105 2.8, which is an insanely good lens and setup. Uh, and each roll of film probably going to cost me eleven bucks, and then I go and get it. Even if I get the most high end scans I can get, that's going to be like under forty bucks to do that. So. $50 for every uh, 10 photos sounds like a lot, but you know, how many photos do you actually post from a shoot when you shoot digital? Uh, like I'd have to, t- I'd have to take a lot of photos uh, to That's be able true. to justify that uh, bridge <clears throat> gap. But then I guess not that this is a, which is better, one's better than either, but I guess the offset to that would be that you can afford to shoot that many images on digital. You can afford to have thousands and thousands of images backed up on a hard drive. And not have to worry exactly. about the cost of that because it's that it's convenient. I would have to buy a new computer and a new hard drive if I bought those cameras too. I, I can't. Yes. I almost so, broke the yeah. bank on this MacBook Air. See, that is actually really funny you should say that because I'm always like, oh, should I upgrade my gear? And it's like, I have a computer that's 10 years old now. Um, and it runs very, it's like every time I switch it on, it sounds about to overheat. But it's just like, I can't, I can't justify spending more money on something when I have something that works. And it's kind of it's kind of like we don't really think about it's not just about the the cost is not just the camera it's everything else that comes with that it's making sure you've got the the equipment to use that camera to hook that camera up to the tripod you need to go out you know the bag you need to take it in you know the insurance you need to walk around in the streets at night stuff like that we don't think about the extra costs that are involved that's a really good point actually it's something to think about I think because it's very easy to forget that you buy a camera yeah sure that's cool but you're not just buying a camera. It's not just a one item. Exactly. I mean, I don't like spending a lot of money on things that someone might try and steal. I always joke that if someone broke into my house, you'd pick probably the worst house to break into because nothing in here is worth anything. Like my most expensive camera, I think it's maybe worth 300 bucks at best. Uh, And it's just, I mean, God, if someone tried to rob me for it, I would just say, all right, let me just rewind my film. Like it's a Canon program, like have it. Like you maybe get a hundred bucks locally, 
I see, I like that kind of mindset or I like that kind of idea of like, you don't have to have the best of the best and you don't have to spend thousands of pounds on things because at the end of the day, like if you can't afford it, don't buy it. You know, that's the way I've always been. I've always been raised that way and this is why I live. It's like, if you can't afford it, don't buy it. And even if you can afford it, it doesn't mean you should buy it. It doesn't mean you need it just because you can afford it, you know? And I think it's kind of, I'm very kind of interested because you've said about the fact you shoot film because it kind of just says to me that like, rather than it be about the gear and it be about having the best thing ever, you're using what you have. Like, and it's more important for you to have, have the ability to create great work than it is for you to, because, you know, like there's so many photographers you see or quote unquote content creators, if you want to have that conversation later, that have the best gear. They have like a Canon Mark, is it five that's out now? Whatever it's out now. And they have, you know, 3000 pound cameras and they have like the best lenses, but their work is kind of still mediocre. They're just shooting stuff everybody else shoots. It doesn't really make, it doesn't really say anything or there's no depth to it, but they have the equipment. Yet we have somebody like yourself or somebody like so many of the photographers I talk to whose work for me, at least personally, it speaks to me a lot more, yet you don't necessarily have the best gear. You don't have to have the most expensive equipment in the world to create great images. It's about your eye. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I'd probably shoot digital if I could afford digital, but uh, it's just too much of a, a gap that I can't get past. Yeah. And yeah, I think you're right too. A lot of the people that rely a lot on the gear, um, it kind of shows in their work. I mean, one of my friends has really, really good gear, but like he makes use of that gear. Uh, and it's definitely not a very common occurrence where people will, uh, I don't know. I mean, I would even say his skill set is probably passing his gear. And he's got like that fancy uh, uh, Canon camera, like the art, whatever, with the, I don't know, I think it's a 200 millimeter 2.8. I don't know. And I'd say he's probably already outgrown it, but I don't think most people uh, would even uh, make use of that properly. See, that's also a very good point. Like, just because you have the equipment doesn't mean you know what you're going to do with it. And not just that, like, it's, you know, and I don't want to like I'm hating on people who have the best gear because I'm not hating on that. Oh, I think if people can afford it, buy it. If you want to buy it, if you want to invest in that, go ahead. But it's important that you are able to actually understand what you like about the work you create, not just create work to create work, if that makes sense. Like, I don't know. Exactly. It, there's, there's something that when I see somebody with like the fanciest, like I know I went to university to study a photography degree. Um, okay. And when I did, people were buying the latest camera that was out for like £3,000 during their degree. And it's like, you're buying the best gear, but you don't have the best eye. Like train your eye first before you pick up the best camera. Because without a good eye, without knowing what you actually want to shoot, without kind of knowing who you are as an artist, you're not going to make the best use of that gear. That gear is just going to be good gear. Good gear, bad image, you know? Yeah, exactly. It's a good point. And uh, especially then, I mean, you're probably doing some film in college, uh, university, I imagine. A little. <laughs> Only a slight bit. Yeah, so if trying to figure out, yeah, I, I imagine too, like even back like before us, uh, you know, learning to do photography in like the 80s, um, if someone had access to the cameras back then, I mean, I just bought them a Mia RB67. I'm not going to sell it, but it's definitely, I mean, it's it's got limitations for what i like to use so i mean i can't imagine learning on an expensive camera and then deciding you need a different one and not just that i think the problem with gear even this is not meant to be about <laughs> conversation heading very much towards gear but it's cool but it's like the problem also with gear is that once you buy the latest thing you want the next thing and it's like at what point do you appreciate and respect the fact you have something to create with and that's better than having nothing to create with exactly exactly i think that gets lost in the whole debate of film versus digital everyone 
everyone makes it about cost, but I mean, there's a reason the subscription-based model businesses do well these days. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's more palatable and it's easier for uh, someone with a thin margin every month to throw a hundred bucks at film than upgrade their thousand dollar digital setup every two to three years. But I also think it's, without being very cynical, I also think it's a very convenient way for companies to keep people having to come back. You know, if I think about something like Adobe Photoshop, for instance, or Lightroom, it's like, like it, it was so much better back in the day when you could just buy it outright and you owned it because yes, it was an expense, but you had it. Nowadays, you have to pay for it all the time. There's no cutoff point at which you just don't need it anymore and you become reliant upon it, which is, you know, a great business model, but it's also a bit, I don't know, even though I use it, I have my room. I did have Photoshop, which I need to buy a new computer to get. Um, it doesn't really sit well with me. I'm not a big fan of the whole kind of like, oh, we are going to force you to have to pay every month to use the service that we could have just given you for a lump sum. Oh, I agree with that fully. I mean, if digital is just a little bit cheaper, for me, it just happens to be on that fringe. Like uh, different people have like different things. But I mean, a film was going to cost me $300 or $400 a month. Well, at that point, yeah, I'll spend a thousand, like several thousands on the digital. Uh, but for me, like a hundred or, you know, 200 bucks every two to three months. Uh, it's like kind of that perfect uh, number where I don't really feel the need to go more expensive at that point. That's also good though, because you have like a limitation. Like, you know, you're not going to get stupid crazy and start spending, because you, know, you buy a digital camera and then you buy the light boxes and then you buy the studio lights and then you buy a studio space and then you buy a bag and then you buy a new lens. You know, you're just always buying stuff when actually the great thing about you right now is that you know, what you kind of what you can't afford and you work with that parameter yeah exactly exactly which is a, a clever way to do things actually rather than just spending a ton of money and just being like yeah this is going to be great and it turns out to be terrible um so anyway moving away from gear slightly because yeah <laughs> so do you think photography is a form of art yeah definitely so uh, i think i think anything that someone creates uh is a form of art um I know like people are talking about AI art these days. Yes. I, I hate that. I hate that so much. Do you? It's like if they created the program, sure. Like that's art at that point. No, I'd even go as far as saying like, you know, uh, I have a friend that uh, makes these. Um, uh, so like NFTs, I don't like NFTs for photos. I think it's like horrible, but NFTs and same thing with like, you know, digital apes. I think that's ridiculous, but there's a certain like, nft subsect where it's like actual coding it's an actual like you know i had a friend explain it to me with what he did but it's like you would you would buy this thing and there was a certain chance that this thing would become a different thing it's more of a video game than anything but you know i like that sort of uh approach to it i would consider that an art because you know the way he does his coding and stuff and uh the artists he involves to do like the design for it so, i mean those artists are getting paid a lot of money to uh drop all these things and his his coding guys are making a lot of money uh writing up this code which i mean i think code is an art i think a lot of things are an art that people don't consider uh you know even designing a house uh oh, yeah. is an art. absolutely absolutely i think that's i think that's a funny thing like and it comes come actually comes back to a question i'll probably ask you in a second but it's it's funny how like during the pandemic people publish lists of like the most important and the least important jobs and art was like the least one of the least important jobs and it's like but if we didn't have art in the world, we wouldn't have anything. Like art is permeates every part of culture, whether that is designing a house, designing packaging, whether that's you know prints on a wall, whether that's you know architecture, 
you know, art is ingrained in society. And I think without art, everything would be very boring and bland. And it, it's kind of funny how, you know, society doesn't really value art. And I kind of want to ask you, kind of moving on from that question is, like, do you think that society values photography? Uh, you got you to gotta clip that quote that you just said, too. I think it was a really good quote, the way you said that, <laughs> the way you described like art there. That's, that's a good quote. Um, I don't know. Like, I, I think generally uh, society will put too much value on uh, certain big name photographers and kind of skim over a lot of like smaller name photographers. I, I follow probably about 500 people on Instagram. I think maybe 150 of them are photographers. And uh, there, uh, there's probably like a hundred of them. And I, I would say that they are you know, much better than, uh, I won't name names, but there's mm -hmm. certain big name photographers that get a huge following. And I think, you know, at that point, like there's like a bell curve, uh, like they're good and they deserve like, you know, a fair bit of like, you know, appreciation, but then it goes too far up. Um, and uh, I think a really good example of a, of a bell curve um, for some of these guys. So uh, Willem Verbeek. I love Willem Verbeek. His his, uh, his photography. It's I know he's one of the you know the YouTubers that a lot of people kind of cringe at, but uh, I know I know like I think he just gets lumped in with the other ones. Uh, but it's a bell curve. You know, you start off you're like, wow, this guy's amazing, and then at a certain point they're like, oh no, this guy's overrated. But then really you got to stay at the top of that bell curve because you know, I mean, I, I find he's quite good like technically, like his framing, his uh, exposure times, and uh, the way he explains things in uh, videos uh, is really helpful. Like his night photography videos, really, really good. So I think somebody like him, I think it's, he's a really good example because I actually really like his work a lot. I don't look at it that often, actually. I should probably look at it a lot more. I should probably look at it later, actually. And I said his name, I'm about, I just remember to look at his work. But um, I think the whole YouTube thing, I think you're right. People cringe at it and people are like, oh, you know, you want to start a YouTube channel. But I think that's a whole skill set right there. You know, people are like, you know, oh, now, people may find it cringy and people may be like, you know, oh, well, that's just, you know, kind of a content creator kind of thing to do. But it's like that involves so much hard work and dedication. It's like Kyle McDougall, for instance. I don't know if you know his work. You know, he's like, he's, he's somebody who I have a lot of respect for because he does so many different things. And he does them all very well. But you know that it's taken time to develop that. Like, it's not just a case of let's grab a camera, let's record myself, let's go out and take pictures. It's It's... It's a whole set of skills, a whole process of learning. It's a whole process of making mistakes, you know, and people can't deliver good quality content like that just off the cuff. It doesn't really work. Yeah. So I like him, Peter McKinnon. I don't really watch any of their videos. Uh, just hmm. if I'm given the choice between learning, um, you know, basic exposure times from like a big channel or a small channel, I'm going to go with the small channel every time. Yeah. Uh, bonus points too if it's a woman that's doing the channel because you know they usually yes. get way less views so yeah, i mean you know, i'm be way more likely to click on those videos so you know you got to scroll down to find these but you I do mean, it's the same information 90 percent of the time yeah that's actually a really good point actually and actually that's really funny because i posted a story the other day on my photography account of a few uk photographers whose work i really love um, and somebody messaged me saying why are they all men and i was like I didn't think about that because that's just my natural response to the people who I speak to. And I was like, these are people I speak to on a daily basis. And yeah, they happen to be men. A lot of times I speak to are men, but there is actually a huge kind of, for me at least maybe, a huge kind of divide in terms of like the kind of people who get exposure and the kind of people who don't. Like a lot of women don't necessarily get the same exposure or they don't necessarily have access to the same audience necessarily. 
Yeah, it's it's really tough because I mean it's a tough thing for uh, you know if you're not a dude, it's a tough thing to break into. But when I look at my own out um, like my own account, I see that more than sixty percent of the people that follow me are uh, are men. So I know that like the the sort of night stuff I post, I can even see like who likes it. It's almost all men that like that stuff. Uh, a lot of women are not super interested in, you know, seeing random streets at night. Uh, and uh, I find, uh, too, like, you know, you know the, someone's like trans or whatever. Sometimes they like it and sometimes they don't like it. Um, and it's it's no, there's no data on that. So I can't pull that up. It only shows me, you know, male, female. But yeah, it's it's mostly mostly guys that like my uh, my photos. Um and I, I try to like differentiate. I always try to like, you know, I like night photos too. So I try to find, uh, you know, not just dudes uh, with huge accounts that I'm following. I try to mix it up a bit, um, but it's, uh, it's tricky. Like it's not easy to find, even if you go looking for it. It's, um, it's tough. It's tough. There's actually a really good uh, black and white photographer. That's, um, I mean, I only found her because uh, one page. I think it's Women with Film. I think it's the best curated uh, page. I don't even know how they're finding uh, these women. I don't. I don't understand because the curation isn't amazing, and all of these accounts—they're like small accounts, like really, really small accounts. But uh, Christy Cornell, uh, really, really good black and white photographer, um, really does a good job at uh, I don't know, like adding mood to an image. That's uh, the right way to say it. But yeah, you really got to go looking for that stuff. See, that's really interesting to say that. Cause it made me kind of think, like, how many like female photographers can I list off the top of my head versus male photographers? Because male photographers are easy. I speak to ninety percent of the, the photographers I speak to are male, so I've got a list of people I speak to quite often. But female photographers, not really. There is a female photographer I actually published today on the front football called Astrid Francis, whose work is incredible. Her work is great. I'll send you her work later. Um, yeah, please do. You know, and I'm thinking of people like Sarah Cutter, who's also awesome. Her work is great as well. And actually, now I'm thinking about it, I'm thinking more people. So I'll send you a list, actually, the people I know or people that I've came across, if you're interested. Um, because now you said that, I kind of feel like that is actually a really good point. It's not something I've really considered. And it's something that I've been thinking about today because it's a message the other day. But it's kind of interesting to think about, like, you know, we want to give everybody representation and we want to give everybody the right exposure. It's very easy to kind of, cater to particularly when it comes to something like nighttime images for instance which are you know both overdone and also very popular um it's very easy to kind of fall into the category of like this is your audience you're only going to kind of produce content for that audience when actually you want to be at least a bit more universal you know and not just everything has to, everything doesn't have to be like hard lines and and kind of rough images and it doesn't have to all be kind of you know uh have that kind of energy that you know only guys were like, you know, it's like, you know, you want you want your educated to everybody because you don't know who's looking at it. Which is actually it's not I've never thought about. I said that I'm like, hmm, I should be thinking about that. Um that's interesting. Yeah, it's like a self-fulfilling thing too. Because yeah. like obviously a lot more men do this stuff, which means you know, a lot more like a lot less women do it, but more women would want to do it if more women did it, because you know, when you look to find like an inspiration, I mean it's got to feel a little bit like not great when you're trying to get into a field and almost no one that looks like you is, uh, has made it in that field or become successful in any way. Uh, not, not saying that like, you know, they haven't become successful, but, uh, you know, you look at the saturation, like almost all of the big name photographers are dudes. So that's probably like, you know, a little bit of a gut punch for not a dude trying to get into photography. That's very true. 
and uh nice that i'm writing some names down that i'm going to send you later because i'm just like i've thought of a few people now so that's cool i can name at least more than two that's good that's a good sign um but um that's actually a really interesting to think about actually and i think one of the best ways you can find that is if you find one artist find who is following them and who they're following because more often than not the, the people who comment on an artist's posts or the people that follow the artist you know as the, as the saying goes you know like attracts like it's very very true one of the best ways that i find new artists is from comments and follows because um yeah like follows like you know and it's just the way it works so that's always a good way to find new and interesting artists that aren't going to be the most popular that aren't going to be the most widely discussed that aren't going to be you know that overexposed you know yeah and like i like to avoid um a lot of the big reshare accounts because i went through through a few of them one time and it's like man you guys just share the same 15 to 20 people every mm-hmm. month i mean i don't know i i like to look for uh reshare accounts that um share like a variety of people's work rather than just like the top five percent of people it as somebody who obviously has an account which i share a lot of different artists it really depends on the where you're coming from because I think it's very, very easy to just to find the most widely established artists, the most artists with the most followers and follow and share that work because that's going to get you guaranteed views, you know? Um, mm-hmm. But then I personally, for me, at least what I do is I prefer to find accounts that have like a hundred views or a hundred followers or like, you know, not that many people know about them and share them because that's much more important. The community side of what I do is more important than the numbers. And I think you have to kind of weigh up what is more important for you it just really depends. It, it depends. Yeah, I like the way you curate it. I really do. And the other thing too is like, as you really get going, like you're going to get, uh, and I can probably introduce you to a few more people, but you know, you're getting some bigger name uh, artists on here, which is going to draw more views, which is going to help some of the earlier people that you did. Because when people get into podcasts, I usually start at the beginning and work my way yes. up. Um, but yeah, like, you know, I think Charlie uh, with, uh, you know, Caffeine Cowboy, I think that was a really, really good, uh good get for you and it was a really good conversation because it's you know it's one of my favorite photographers and i've always wondered like you know what's his process like you know what's he do so it was kind of cool to listen to that and you know how you know that's that's what he's like it is weird so okay so the, the funny story about him and the funny story about cursed by morrow as well um and i've said this in a previous interview i don't know if it's i don't know what interview it was or i don't know if it's when it's released or whatever it's probably going to be out by the time this is out but the, the only way I got those two interviews is because they had Charlie, for instance, he couldn't ask me anything up on his stories. And my question to him was, can I interview for my podcast? And he said, yes. Um, and that's how I saw it. Cause I knew that if I emailed him directly, he would probably never respond because he probably gets so many emails a day. You know, you kind of have to take, as far as I'm concerned, take opportunities where you can. Like I sent the message and I was like, I probably sound really stupid. It's probably a stupid idea, but he's actually super lovely. I had the best time talking to him and he's, he's lovely. Like, I don't speak to him often, but I message him here and there. You know, we keep in touch. And I think that's awesome because he's a great photographer and he's super mysterious as well. You don't really, you know, there's no interviews with him out, out, out there, you know. And I'm always interested in trying to find the people that like to hide because I feel like they have more to say. They just don't know how to say it or where to say it. That's another really good quote. You should, you should clip that one too. <laughs> Full of them today. <laughs> yeah, no, there's, there's quite a few few photographers like that. Like I, I want, he was one of them, but there's a few of them that I'm like, you know, I wonder what they're like because it's really cool when they uh, are talented and they're good at what they do, and they're still, you know, like like good people and they're nice and stuff. Yeah, 
and it, I'm always surprised that people are so lovely. It sounds super weird, but I'm always surprised because you would think that somebody like Charlie, who does have a really good following, um, and you know, who is actually in very many ways is quite renowned. Like he's just an absolute lovely guy. He's so humble, so down to earth, and he, he hasn't even been doing photography for that long. Like he only started in the pandemic, you know. And if you think about like his success, like it hasn't gone to his head. It's not being like, oh, I'm the best, and he still has stuff to learn and. I don't know. I just find people very fascinating. And I feel like the more people try to hide, the more I'm interested in them because I feel like they have so much to say. They just don't know how to say it. Or like, as I say to everybody, like all I want this podcast to be is a space for people to talk about their work. That's all I want. You know, like that's it. So it's, it's fascinating. Oh yeah. A couple of things to go back yeah. on. So like the early inspiration, I forgot to mention those four main accounts I uh, started following. I really kind of kickstarted it. Uh, Oscar Diaz. So he's sort of like a, I don't know if I would call him a street photographer because he does a lot more, but uh new york based photographer uh really really good um he actually followed me back like a year or two ago and i was it was early on so i was like oh this is cool like this is one of my favorite photographers i didn't expect that uh so that gave me a nice bit of confidence but he does some really really cool stuff uh and like early on like that's what got me really kind of interested in it uh another guy i'm gonna butcher the pronunciation of this name uh vianditia uh donata I'm, I'm sorry if he hears this. I screwed that one up. But his Instagram is, uh, it, I'll send it to you. It's like, ooh, fuckerblad or whatever. It sounds like a square word. It's not. Uh, he does really, really cool stuff. He recently switched to film. Uh, it would definitely be like street, but like night street. And that was my main inspo. And then two other people, uh, Andrea Detel. Um, her work is like, sort of has like a film type green cast to it. It's very interesting. Uh, I it's, it didn't get me started on film, but it got me interested in photography. But it works out that when you underexpose film, you get a green cast. Wow. Um, and then uh, Microsoft Surf too. That's another uh, big photographer that had followed me back at one point, which uh, was I don't know. It's it's always cool like when someone does something like that because, uh, anyways. But yeah, she's super cool. Does a lot of really cool. Uh, her art form is like two different things. So she takes the photos. But her editing is like an entirely different art form. The way she does it, like the color grading, really, really unique stuff. Like it would lend itself well to, I don't know, like um, like a Netflix short series or something. Like really, really cool stuff. Have you ever seen the work of Visual Memories? I have not. But you should definitely send me that. I've added the list. Yes, I think you'll like it. Um, because like, so the interesting thing is, is that how weird is it that somebody following you could mean so much that's like a confidence boost but it's also interesting because do you ever consider that like you following other people could mean so much to them yeah i always do like if i notice one person's always like you know supporting my stuff i mean but like i have what 1700 followers like i'm not a big account i'll still do it and i would still do it if i had a hundred thousand but uh yeah i don't know it's just it's it's a nice gesture because it's, it's weird that something so simple and something that's so in very many ways so mindless can actually be so impactful like it's it's quite bizarre because i i agree with you there's people who have followed me i'm like wow that's incredible but at the same time it also doesn't mean anything in a way it's bizarre that's, it's an acknowledgement it's like waving at someone on the street it's uh it's unexpected but you know like if if you know who someone is and they don't know who you are um i don't know it's it's tough to say like I don't think I'll ever have the following of these people, but it, it's cool to have that sort of, uh, you know, support, I guess. But would you rather have 
but see, I agree with that. And I'm not, and as, as much as I'm trying to sound, I probably sound very cynical, but I also kind of feel like I would much rather have somebody that didn't follow me engage with me and talk to me than somebody following me that never talks to me. You know? Well, the thing is, these are always, these people all engage and with me more than a lot of the other people. Like I'll get people that will just follow me, never like any of my photos ever. And it's like, well, why would I follow you back? I don't even know if you like my photos. Or if you're just using like a software to get me to follow you, yeah, and then that's true. Me. That's, that's why I, mean, I don't follow more people back because I can't. I can't stay on top of it. Too many people do that where they follow and then unfollow, and it's just, it's annoying. I personally just don't really care. I, I'm at a point now where I just I have I just don't care. I just honestly I follow people because I want to keep up with them. I do a really bad job of doing that most of the time. And then I have people I want to talk to that I talk to. Like, like if I follow somebody, it's because I like their work. Um, that's really it. It's, it's because I want to message them at some point to be on the website or to, to be on the podcast, or I just like what they do. Um, I don't know. The whole kind of following and following situation, I think it's it's very, it's just bizarre. The more I think about it in terms of what it is, the weirder it seems. I don't know. For me, it's two things. It's like, a, it's almost like the, it's the it's the intention and the nature of it it's just hmm. it irks me uh it, it's just it's fake it irks me in that way but also i find in photography one minute left so i'll say this quick uh in photography i find one of the biggest problems is that there's too many people that are just trying to show their stuff and yeah. they have no intention of engaging with other people and there's a place for that but i mean uh look at the granary app i mean yeah. I mean, that's too niche. That's too niche. Too many people on there are just trying to share their stuff. They don't actually care about other people's photos. And I think the photography community needs to be a bit more supportive of each other rather than just, uh, you know, here's my photos. Oh, I don't care about your photos. I don't, yeah, it needs to change. The thing about photography and community and the idea of like, you're right, like there seems a lot of the time, and it's easy to fall kind of victim to, but like you want people just to see a whack, but you also have to engage with the people because how do you expect people to invest in you if you're not going to invest in them? You know, it's a, it's, it's a give and take. Social media, this is a much later conversation, but like social media is such a give and take. You can't just throw your work out there and expect people to like it, you know? Exactly. Yeah, it's got to be mutual. I mean, it's like any relationship with anyone and anything. You just, you can't expect people to just be your friend and not be their friend. And not just that, like you want to actually make friends. Like that's the thing. You actually want to, create community and build connections and if you're not interested in doing that then you know just don't do that you know because i think we, we forget like photography itself is you know it takes time to create photography but it also takes time to build a relationship so you're not just going to be best friends with somebody as soon as you meet them you're not going to both just kind of hit off immediately you have to it takes time for you to understand somebody to understand their work you know i think the one biggest thing i see with artists is that people expect like artists expect, or some artists, should I say, expect people to understand their work without being able to show themselves. And I feel like as an artist, you have to be somewhat present so that people understand you so they can then understand your work. Because if they don't know who you are, how are they going to understand your work? Or how are they going to kind of want to invest in your work if they can't invest in you? If that makes sense. Yeah, it makes good sense. You know, I guess it's like you said about Charlie Eddie. It's like, you know, you're, you're curious about him because you like his work. It's like we're always we're always very curious about the person creating the images because art is very much a documentation of a person's life and thoughts and emotions and feelings. So, you know, you're essentially looking at the person through images. Yeah, and it's nice to put a, a personality uh, to that. Sometimes I find it's it's interesting. So, 
kind of getting to you and your practice, just a few more intro questions, I guess, would be like, why is the biggest challenge of being a photographer? Ooh, challenge. Um, I've literally shot almost every single building and area at night. I'll drive around for three hours and I won't find anything. In fact, uh, me and my two friends that we usually shoot with, for us to find anything to shoot now, we have to drive almost two hours uh, through our province. And still, like, that, that's, yeah, like, well, that'll dry off very soon. Oh, yeah. That's actually really funny because there's a, a photographer I interviewed, I'm going to say two weeks ago. I can't remember when it was. I should probably know. Um, his name is Ronnie Ackling and he's he lives in Birmingham here in the UK. He's actually not that far away from me. And he said the same thing. Like his problem right now is that he's stuck in a rut because he's, he's photographed everywhere that he can around him. And, you know, traveling is great, but it costs money. It costs its time. It's resources you may not have. So I kind of, I'm just kind of curious, like, so how are you going to combat that? So like, what are kind of like, if there is any plans you have, like what kind of plans do you have to kind of make sure you're still creating with what is around you, even if you've kind of done everything? Yeah, so I took a trip to uh, Montreal, Quebec. Uh, I took two trips to Montreal, Quebec. One I flew, the other one I drove. Uh, so I took some you know, shots of the metro, some shots around the city, and that was fun. But uh, the timing, like the finances and everything, like I couldn't couldn't have done that at a worse time in my life. Uh, the finances after uh, it, it's been mayhem. It's been mayhem. But uh, I'm gonna force myself to spend money to travel and and get out because the only way I could combat that locally is getting into portraiture a little bit but i mean there's only so much i mean i find film and portraiture is like not really the best way to get into portraiture because even if you take yeah. a good photo i mean if you shoot at the slightly wrong time and someone's eyes are closed it's not like i'm taking five photos in a row where i'll still get their eyes yeah. open like that's that's a three dollar photo that is going to look terrible yeah, it's a huge risk. It's a huge risk, especially if it's something that you're not comfortable necessarily doing, not something you necessarily have um, experience in doing as well, particularly. Because I think taking pictures of people seems very easy on the surface, but it can be extremely challenging. Because if you're shooting with a person who has no experience modeling, if you're shooting with somebody who is not comfortable in front of a camera, if you're shooting somebody at nighttime and you're shooting film, for instance, like all of these different things are going to present challenges all together combined. It's a whole different ballgame. Um, so I, I definitely feel like that's a really good point you raised and not just that it's it's kind of like I've seen a huge shift recently within the last three months of a lot of photographers that I follow and talk to shooting portraits as opposed to just places and I kind of feel like it's a good shift I think but I think it's also it's very easy to get tied up in shooting one kind of image or like being known for a type of image like how do you as a photographer Make sure you're evolving, but also having something, having like your own signature style or some or something where, you know, people can understand it's your work, if that makes sense. Like, how do you not keep yourself trapped in a box? Yeah, so I find some photographers are really, really good at, uh, you know, you see their work, you know, it's them. Uh, there's quite a few people, but I'm going to name two people. One I see on Reddit sometimes that I don't even know the guy's Instagram. I just, when, when I see the photo pop on Reddit, I know it's him or them. I don't know. Uh, it's AA underscore battery. And it's just the landscapes. And there was another uh, guy I found through Reddit. I have this one on Instagram. Uh, Neum Brick, Brickley. I think it's Neum Brickley. Uh, if you go in the people I'm following, you type in N-I-A-M. Uh, ridiculously cool landscapes. And I'm not particularly into landscapes. But uh, those are really, really cool landscapes. And I find every time I see it, I, I just, I know who it is. 
Um, but you know, like same with Microsoft serve the, the girl I follow, she follows me back. Um, I, I recognize her stuff anywhere. I mean, God, you could take a photo of a fridge. I'd probably still recognize it from the color grading. Um, I find a lot of people have a lot of different things that become recognizable. Uh, definitely not me. I, I don't find I actually have any specific, uh, thing like i don't think anyone's gonna look at any one of my photos and say oh you know this is ryan that shot this i don't, I don't think it's obvious at all do you want to make it obvious like is that something you want to develop over the years i don't know i'm kind of all over the place like uh you know i, I like i like variety in things um and it's it, it also takes a lot of effort and a lot of like skill and like thought to make your work uh very like you know visually identifiable and I don't, yeah. I just don't know if I like would be able to do that if I wanted to. Uh, so it's like, I mean, maybe a couple of my like long exposures at night might be identifiable as me, but I don't make it a big enough percentage of my work to really be, you know, something that is uh, clearly me. So actually, let's get into your work a little bit. So for those who may not have seen it, can you just kind of describe the kind of work you create? Yeah. Okay. So yeah, I take a, I take a big variety of stuff. Um, it's hard to like categorize it. I, I would say like most of it, uh, that people see that the ones that do well, the ones that people see on Instagram are the, uh, they're just long exposures at night. I don't have a light meter or anything like that. Uh, sometimes I'll have a camera with a light meter, my Nikon F801S, but most of my cameras don't have working light meters when it gets that dark. So oh. I'm, I'm like guessing most of the time. I don't really know how to explain what's going on in my head, but I don't have like a reciprocity calculator. I don't have like a light meter. I'm just kind of like doing this weird math equation in my head. Like, oh, this feels like it might look good. And I think I'm just getting really lucky because like a lot of these things just come out looking exactly how I want them to. It's, uh, it's nice. It's nice. So I think that's really interesting because a lot of the people I've spoken to, like JC Fox, Nico Evermore, like Parse I spoke to in the past, who's a good friend of mine now. Um, people like that, they shoot a lot of different things. They shoot a whole variety of images. And I'm kind of curious, like, do you ever worry that maybe you're shooting things that are too varied? Yeah, so I, I know that I sometimes take stuff that's too varied that is not going to appeal to certain, like, probably, I mean, I, I can tell when I post something and I lose followers, but um, it's funny. The ones that will lose me followers will also gain me new different followers. So I mean, I probably don't do the best job at trying to build my following because at the end of the day, regardless of how well something does on Instagram, I like posting my my dumb little twilight yeah. shots or, you know, my black and white stuff. And I know my audience doesn't like it, but I, I mean, I got to do it. So I'm kind of curious, like, do you consider yourself a professional photographer? Definitely not. Uh, if I wanted to, I could probably be a good real estate photographer. Um I, I think right now I'm the third best one in my tiny city, but that's not saying much. Um, I just, but like professional photographer to do it for work, uh, definitely not. Definitely not. Like, would that be something you'd want to achieve? Like, would you want to be at a point where, say, like, for instance, you're selling prints, having workshops, teaching classes, that kind of thing? Was that something you'd be interested in doing? I don't think I really know enough to teach classes. Like I, I, I can pretty much tell everyone everything I know about photography within like an hour or two, go shoot with them a couple of times and they'll get the hang of it. And then they'll evolve from there. But like the more nuanced, detailed and technical questions, I can tell you 
what you need to know, but I can't explain uh, what it is that you need to know. I can just tell you, like, you need to look up reciprocity failure. You need a tripod. But if you want to know what type of tripod or what, you know, is reciprocity failure, all I can explain is that the film loses sensitivity at a certain point, and sometimes films don't. But it just, it depends. Uh, and then doing it for work, I don't think I would like to do it for work. It would be cool to sell more prints and, you know, maybe have like a photo in like a gallery or something like that. But uh, I don't really have a strong desire to uh, do like professional work. If I do portraiture, it's, uh, you know, it's got to be like, you know, artistic. It's got to be, uh, it's got to be more so for like, you know, me and uh, the other person uh, than, you know, I need like paid work. I've had a few people offer to like, you know, pay me money to do things like weddings I'm shooting a wedding in September, but I'm not like, I'm not really charging for it. I'm just covering the cost just because, you know, I want to see like what my wedding photos look like. Uh, but yeah. if someone wanted to pay me money to do a wedding, even if I had a digital camera, I don't think I'd want to do it. I think it would just not really be up my alley. I think I, I find it funny when people ask me to shoot weddings. Cause if you look at my, my Instagram feed, it's like, I mean, I think maybe I could shoot like a, I don't know, like a funeral, but like, I don't know if you'd want me like shooting a wedding. So, but I'm excited because I kind of want to like prove that, you know, I can take decent wedding photos uh, this September, but it's definitely not a thing that I'm like, all right, you know, you can charge me. I, I got a different photographer to be the main shooter and I'm going on a second shooter instead. Uh, and yeah. she's really good. She does a great job. Uh, so I don't have the stress of like trying to nail everything. I can just get creative yeah. and, do some unique stuff that may or may not turn out well uh and that, that's a great way to go about it because you're giving yourself the flexibility to be able to try something new without any risk of actually having to produce incredibly great images for somebody's you know memories that you know you don't want to mess up because you know if you mess that up it's not going to be ideal but um also i think that's very funny because i feel like as soon as you ask somebody you're a photographer people automatically assume you'll shoot weddings like the amount of people who have asked me to shoot weddings i'm like i don't shoot weddings and they're like, oh, you can make a lot of money. I'm like, yeah, but I don't care about making a lot of money. That's not why I, I create work. Yes, it'll be nice to make more money, sure. But I think sometimes people don't realize, um, or at least people who aren't artistic, or who aren't in the art sphere, they don't realize that you can create work to create work. You can go out and take images because you want to go and take images. You don't have to make money from what you're doing. I think it's a huge kind of misconception that, oh, you're a photographer, you must shoot weddings, you must make a lot of money. It's like, you can just want to go around, you know, travel around at night and take images for the sake of doing it, you know? Yeah, I mean, I feel like that's probably like a, a consequence or side effect of society when uh, so much of what we do revolves around, you know, dollars and cents where a lot of people are like, oh, you know, we, we think you're good at this, so you should try and turn this into a profitable thing. And I think oh, like that's yeah. just not the right mindset to have with anything related to art because, you know, I mean, look at the NFT people. It, it ruins their uh, it ruins their photos in my opinion because there's a big even if it's a good photo it's hard to be into a photo knowing that someone has created it to sell it as an NFT. I just can't can't really stomach that. But yeah, I mean, I, I think people should be uh, careful with which art forms that they want to turn into income. Burnout really yes. quick. I I really agree because, you know, a lot of people actually ask me about my opinion on NFTs, which is funny. I'm like, I know nothing about NFTs. Don't ask me anything. Um, but what I've always said to photographers who have asked me, I've said, like, if you're going to think about selling NFTs as a photographer, 
then do something with your image that makes it more than a piece of more than an image. Do something that's going to animate it. Do something that's going to make it more, in very many ways, more of an art piece than a, just a photograph because that's what you're going to sell. And it's not going to be everything else that's going to be on your website as a print. You know, if someone's going to pay for an NFT, make it an experience for that person. So they're going to want to pay for that. You know, make it unique, make it actually an actual one-off piece rather than just be, oh, I have these images on my hard drive that I'm doing nothing with. Let's just put them into a collection and sell them because, yeah, you can do that. That's cool. But, you know, don't you want to give somebody an experience, not just an image, you know? Yeah, exactly. I mean, like the NFT I talked about earlier, like that's basically a video game. So it's like not really entirely uh, what it is, but I mean, the idea that someone would buy like an NFT of a photo it's like, what are you going to do with that? Like, you have some digital fake house that you're going to put it in, or I don't know. I, I saw one interesting thing though. It was like a, it was like a virtual reality gallery, and I don't, I don't like it for NFT, but I think it would be a really cool idea to sell uh, photos or prints. Uh, just you know, people were walking around, and the photos were hung up on this weird digital wall. Uh, but if you could actually buy those with real dollars and get a real print instead of I don't know, a JPEG. Yeah. feels weird to pay for a JPEG. I can't do that. I I kind of worry, I guess, in a way that like, why are people spending so much time and effort and money buying digital products when they could just literally just buy a print? Like, there are so many photographers, amazing photographers selling prints at, at stupidly affordable prices. But rather than buy from them and support small businesses you'd rather just buy a jpeg from some random person of like an ape that you really don't care about and that honestly you're buying just for the clout you're not even buying because you like it you're buying it because it makes you look good for a millisecond on the internet you know yeah so i think a lot of that uh i mean it's no secret that a lot of the art world for as long as we know has has been driven quite a bit by money laundering for different things and I think yeah. I think what makes uh, the NFTs so popular for money laundering is because it's so much easier to kind of hide that and get that through. Uh, I don't know much about the financial sphere, but I, I imagine there might be some sort of convenience to being able to launder money uh, with how digital everything is these days. But again, like it's kind of hard if if you're buying like you know forty or fifty prints from different artists uh, versus you know one painting that's a million dollars or a digital photo of an ape that's three hundred thousand dollars and you know like it all it's all like ethereum or bitcoin so i mean i don't really know what goes on with the whole bitcoin ethereum money laundering like i know that there's something there uh don't really know what it is but i think that's why nfts sell as much as they do versus uh digital or you know like prints from like you know me for example because you'd have to buy so many prints to launder money that it would be probably more suspicious than if you went and bought like a car I just feel like why not just not loan to money and why not just buy prints because you want to support artists? Why not just do that? You know? Yeah. I think it's because <laughs> most of the people with lots of money that want to support art artists. I, I think most of the, the money in art is not from people that want to support artists. I think, of, Oh yeah. I mean, I don't know what the percentage yeah. is. It could be 50, 50, but uh, I definitely don't think a, an overwhelming majority of people with money supporting artists um, necessarily even like people like me would be like a, not even a blip on the radar, you know, just because I don't even know if someone like Willem Verbeek would be anything more than a blip on the radar for some of these people. Yeah. He makes darkroom prints. Like, I mean, that's the other thing too. 
I'm much more likely to buy someone's darkroom print uh, than a digital print if they're a film photographer. That's why I feel weird selling like my my prints. Uh, I would buy someone else's prints. I have nothing against someone doing like you know prints off the the website darkroom, but I just think it's so cool when someone you know makes a, a handmade print in the darkroom. I would pay three, four, five times the money for something like that because it's yeah. it's literally a one off. So that's actually very interesting because there's a an artist I interviewed a while back. His name's Ano Mystery, and he is a mixed media artist. And one thing that he said to me in our interview, and it's really stuck with me since, is that a lot of galleries that he has his work sold at are saying to him that you need to make your photo because he he uses photographs um, as part he he shoots his own photographs, uses like a base for his work. His work's incredible, but. A lot of the galleries were saying to him that you need to make your photographs more into pieces of art than just photographs because that's what's going to make them sell. So the idea of making something that's handmade, making something that is going to be unique, making something that is more than just an image that is reproduced, will make it more of a piece of art. And people value art more than value just a solid photograph. Unfortunately, it's just the honest truth, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just the way the world is. But it's kind of, it makes me at least always think about like, so how can you, offer something more than just an image like what else can you do to make it a piece of art i think a very simple thing that a photographer can do even if it's a digital print of a film photo or a digital photo just sign the back and date and number it Mm. you know like every print i do now is is dated and numbered and the ones that i've sold that are not dated and numbered uh i know which ones they are like they're the first or the second like i have it on my notes i track it all Uh, that's why i stopped using that darkroom website because uh, it, it's impossible for me to track it. You know, I can't say that this is one of 10 or two of 10. Uh, so now like, you know, when I do stuff, I want to make sure that um, it's a trackable number. And I, I don't want something I sell to be something that anyone can buy anytime. Like I'd like my prints to be able to hold some value. Uh, like my, my Larry electric print, I've sold, I think two, maybe three of those. I will never sell more than 10 of those. Uh, at least as eight by twelves, and if I do another run, uh, it'll be at a bigger size. It won't be at eight by twelve. Yeah. So like those those people that own those those two, uh, I think it's two, and I have a third one here. But the people that own the two Larry Electric prints, like those are one and two, uh, and there will never be like another one or two like that. Yeah, it's about exclusivity. It's about giving something to somebody and saying this is the only copy, or like. There's only a limited number. You know, scarcity improves value. It's, you know, it's very, it's obviously very obvious when you think about like limited edition prints of artists and you know, kind of the amount of money people can pay for limited edition stuff. But I also kind of think like, do you ever worry that maybe your art isn't accessible to everybody if you're selling limited editions or if you're selling stuff that's a lot more scarce? Well, my art is, uh, my photos are cheap uh, and they still don't sell for the most part. So I mean, if, if someone really wants, like, I mean, a couple of my carnival photos, I think I maybe sold three or four of, but there's plenty of, uh, of value uh, or options, I guess. I mean, all people have to do is like send me a message. Uh, let me know if I can get one of those done and I'll just, I'll print the rest of the, the run and then sell them as that. But um, I don't think there's enough demand for uh, for accessibility to be a concern right now. And because it's cheap, I mean, like, uh, what I do like locally, if I don't have to do shipping, I'll do, I'll do three for 20 and they're, they're in frames at 20 bucks. So like, I don't really make much money on that, but yeah. like locally, I mean, the idea that someone would want to hang like a, a print that I took 
I mean, I, I think that's pretty cool right now. And uh, I, I would like to think if they're that interested in my work and they're going to support me like that, I would like that the thing that they bought would be worth more, whether it's like 50, 60 years or whatever, because none of us are going to be around forever. See, that's true. And that's actually, that's actually just very true. So I have a print here, actually, by a really cool artist called Honor the Film. His name's Eric. Um, and I paid the most expensive print I own. It wasn't a crazy amount of money, but it was, it was more money than I would normally spend on a print. But we actually kind of haggled the price, which I don't know if I should really be saying this on the podcast, but we kind of haggled the price a bit because um, he said to me, like, because he's from Germany and I'm obviously in the UK, he was like, I would love to have my work on somebody's wall in the UK. So I'll come down on the price a little bit. And I was like, cool, that's perfect for me. Um, it's still more money than that, you know, I'm happy, to, like, I'm happy to pay that money. And it was kind of just interesting because the value of actually having that work on somebody's wall is actually a lot more significant than the amount of money you can make, the profit you can make off that image. So um, I think that's really interesting. And not just that, you have to remember, like, for instance, you know, I'm definitely going to check out your prints because I'm going to buy prints, some more prints at some point. I'm moving out at the end of next week, the week after next. Um, and I need to see what space I've got. And then I'm going to buy loads of prints because I want to just, there's so many cool artists I say that I want to buy their work. Um, so it's like, I'll definitely check out your work because I'm guaranteed you'll have images that I'd be very interested in. But it's kind of like, it's always nice to have your work appreciated by people. And it's nice to have your work in print as well. I think not enough photographers do. Anyways, let's get back into your work because we've kind of danced around that subject. So are there any particular kind of themes you're drawn to in your work? Like, or kind of particular locations that you're drawn to? Yeah, so I'd say like the overarching theme in everything I do, whether it's like a daylight photo or, you know, a photo that's black and white, night, twilight, any sort of shot. Uh, the one theme would be sort of like a like a desolate, empty type of uh, theme. Like I go for something that's more like, you know, melancholy, somber, that sort of thing. Um, I, I, I like to think like even like the happy daylight shots kind of have like the sort of like uh, emptiness, you know, like where are the, where are the people, uh, I guess. And if there are people, I still try to make it look empty because, you know, like, like isolate that one person, you know, make, make people kind of wonder like what's going on in that one person's life. So <laughs> it's really funny. And I know I do this to myself all the time, but like every photographer that I've ever interviewed for the podcast has a very similar work, you know, and it's not, that's not a mistake because that's the kind of work I love. It's the work I love to shoot. It's the work that I love to see, but I'm also very, con I always get a bit concerned because I'm like, you know, am I just literally having the same conversation over and over again? Probably. But also it's just a case of like, why do you think that this idea of like desolation, this idea of emptiness, this idea of like open space, like why is that such a compelling subject matter? I can't speak for everyone else, um, but that's kind of just how I view the world is like, you know, like edgy as that sounds. Uh, <laughs> like, I don't know, I try to make sure that like what I shoot kind of conveys like, you know, uh, what's what i think and uh, i imagine other people are probably like in the same boat i mean it's uh it's a strange planet we live on so it can be tricky at times but what do you think that says about you uh i i've had a i've had a very uh you know a lot of people have had like very difficult lives a lot of people have had very like probably much 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 more difficult lives i mean like there's no question about that but uh I think the uniqueness of my situation growing up, uh, 
I don't think that too, too many people like have been subject to that same sort of unique level mm. of like their life might've been way worse than mine, but like mine is so unique and weird that even for like human sake, like it's still strange. So I spent, uh, trying to go like the least amount of details possible, but I spent a yeah, lot of, course. of my yeah, life absolutely. like isolated. Uh, the first 13 years yeah. of my life, it was in a joint custody thing. Um, when I was at my dad's house, uh, so it was my dad and my mom, uh, my dad, absolute lunatic, violent type of human. Uh, and then my mom, uh, she was, you know, sweet, really good. Um, her husband at the time was fine. That changed later. But anyways, the first 13 years of my life, uh, my dad was constantly, whether it was legal, physical, he was trying to take me away from my mom. He made sure to threaten me all the time from like age of like, you know, two to three, right up until the day where, you know, I, I, I left, I'll get into that in a bit, but uh this meant that i was never allowed to have like friends over rarely i was allowed to have friends over i wasn't allowed to make calls outside of the house uh he actually kidnapped me at one time and i didn't think i was coming back and this is all when i'm like a child so you know when you're two and three yeah, exactly and being told like hey you know you're never going back there like it's a scary thing for a, a young child and when you're you know nine ten years old uh you know in like a hotel room uh you know and the cops are looking for you you're like well shit you know i'm probably never gonna see you know my mom and my friends again uh, so, you know, that, that sort of like isolation type thing, the twilight shot specifically, uh, I grew up on a street called Rennick and at the time there was nothing behind, but there was, uh, the power lines. I remember going to bed, looking out the window all the time at the power lines. And I was like the way the sky sort of like created the silhouette. Uh, so whenever I shoot twilights, like, you know, that's kind of what that's about. Um, and then, you know, the night stuff, I don't really know when the night stuff started, uh, Actually, you know what? I, I do, I do, I do. Um, so that was like kind of that part of the isolation. Um, and obviously the daytime, I would spend a lot of time, you know, just looking outside the window, uh, hoping that I'd see someone I would know drive or walk by just so I'd feel a little bit more connected to them because uh, it, it, it was difficult being like that isolated and basically like in jail for so long. But, uh, you know, even when I was around friends half the other half of the time, like, you know, there's a very strong disconnect and isolation because, you know, I was gone yeah. half the time. Even half the family like, that I still have, there's a huge disconnect because I was gone half the time. Uh, and then 14, you know, through high school years, uh, I wound up switching high schools three times. I would keep like detaching from friend groups and like isolating them. Uh, so certain things like uh, the liminal spaces, for example, I would stare at like, you know, when other friends are like talking and stuff, I'd be staring at like different parts of different rooms and like, kind of just observing the the lights and little things too like you know how dust would sort of float in through uh, a light and golden hour like you know I've, I've a few things that kind of stuck in my brain like visually uh during those times uh, and then i had one more like period of time where i was extremely isolated i, I got sick when i was 19 right out of high school <laughs> broke up with my girlfriend at the same time immediately got sick immediately lost my job uh, i spent two full years uh, in 2013 and 14 completely alone there was two friends that would check on me uh, but everyone else that I had ever known, uh, except for uh, my mom, obviously, um, was was out of the picture. So uh, it was it was difficult, uh, you know, like waking up, you know, going to bed, like very very difficult. And what I would do to try and feel connected is I would just go for drives late at night. Uh, you know, sometimes I'd drive through downtown just to kind of wonder, you know, what it was like to you know, you know, have that sort of life. So you can only drive through downtown so much here. And then you start driving through other bits of town. So, you know, like old industrial parks and you just look at like, the you know, the lighting, the textures, the details. 
Uh, and I guess over time, it's sort of like marinated in my brain. And uh, whenever I go shoot now, it's like, I won't say it's like an homage because that's cliche, but uh, a lot of like what I shoot is just kind of, you know, the things that I've spent the most time looking at. So I haven't spent a lot of time looking at people quite the same as other people. I, I love people, but you know, it's just, that's not how my life has been. So, you know, for me looking at like buildings, uh, you know, maybe scenes that might be like boring sort of fleeting moments. Like when you're, uh, if you've ever been like a kid driving by and like your parents car looking out the window, uh, I always try to like ask people, you know, remember those things that you would just look at and it was just like a split second. Uh, even in day-to-day -day life, you know, people that walk through things like subways or streets. And I think a lot of photographers do a really good job at uh, conveying this. We, we, we walk by these things and we observe them so casually through, uh, you know, peripheral vision and just glances. But they are the place where we, where we dream. When we dream, this is where we are. We observe so much of this space in passing that we have the detail and we're able to put it in dreams. And uh, a lot of these photographers, they're just snapshotting and doing that. And I'm doing the same. And uh, whenever I tell people too, and they say, oh, I don't know if I could be a photographer, I just ask them, have you ever spent more than two or three seconds looking at one thing? You know, like you really got to challenge yourself. When people say that they're not a photographer or couldn't do it, that's just the way that they're thinking about themselves. They're doubting themselves before they started. But the minute you spend like two, three seconds looking at something and observing any sort of detail, whether it's conscious or subconscious, I think at that moment, you know, you are a photographer. Like you said, it's it's the eye. Uh, you, you, you can own a car. You might not know how to drive it, but that doesn't mean you don't own a car. That's really fascinating. There's so much I can say from that because there's definitely parts of that I can definitely relate to. Um, and there's definitely parts that I know other photographers that I know more about their personal lives can also relate to. Um, and I think that's, it's really fascinating because then photography in a kind of some form is like a, almost like a form of therapy. It's almost like a way for you to kind of, as I always say to everybody anyway, like art is, you know, and I said this earlier to somebody with a long voice message, but all art is, is like a way to um, externalizing the internal, you know, that's what art is. It's a way for you to show your inner emotions, show your feelings, show your thoughts. I really like the people. In it. You should clip that quote in you it. just said. <laughs> I've got a better, I've said it better before somewhere else, but um, that's what it is. You know, you're externalizing the, your internal mind because that's all that art is. It's just a way for you to process your thoughts, your feelings, the person you are, which is why I say, you know, when you're looking at an image, whether it's a painting, whether it's a photograph, like you're looking at the person creating it, you know, every image is a self-portrait, you know, whether it's actually, whether you're involved or not. And I think we forget that. That's another it's, really you know, good quote. I'm sorry I keep doing this, but like you're saying a lot of really good <laughs> things that like... <laughs> like really really good quotes there like i, I love the way that you explain it. those things it's really nice i appreciate that the most sound like i know what i'm doing which is perfect um <laughs> i've done this a long time so i guess it's good job that somebody likes what i'm saying i'm glad but i i just kind of feel like i'm very passionate about art because i think we forget how important art is not just to society but also to the people who create art because at the end of the day like as i say to a lot of artists i say you know this is your life this is not just you that shoot an image on a random Monday. Like this is you, your time. You're spending your life doing this. And you know, that photo shoot you spent three hours doing, like that's time you're never going to get back. So you actually have something to show for it. It might not be the best image ever. It might not be something you like, but it's a dedication. You know, art is a way of living. It's not just something you do, in my opinion, you know. 
Yeah, that's perfectly said. I don't know. That's perfectly said. As, as I always say, I'm just a random guy from England. I know nothing. That's all I, you know. It's just, it's one of those things where like, we're all I feel like, people. All of us. That's, all, that's so funny. So many people say that back to me when I say that. They're like, we're all random people. I'm like, okay. <laughs> um, I just feel like, so, okay. There's so much I want to say. So I'm kind of interested actually. I, I guess it kind of almost goes back to what we said before about, um, being a photographer being kind of like male dominated but i also kind of wonder like the more i talk to photographers especially male photographers the more i kind of notice that there is a huge trend of photographers who shoot wide empty spaces of photographers who go out and shoot at night and i kind of almost wonder like do you think it's related to the idea that in society the way men are treated and the way women are treated are very different and the way that men have friends and the way that women have friends are very different because men i've had this conversation with a few people and uh, someone once said to me, like, men are taught to be alone. Men are raised to be lonely, which is a very interesting way of looking at things. It's not necessarily the right way, but it's an interesting way. Do you think that plays a huge role in the way in which, not just you, but other people take pictures and what they choose to take pictures of? Yeah, I mean, it, I guess the culture changes from place to place. Um I find, you know, over the last like few years since 2015, uh, you know, people uh, like trans people, uh, I don't know if it's people who are trans or trans people. I'm not sure what the right way to say that is, but I find like that sort of emergence has kind of caused women in general to be more open to uh, like more like feminine aspects of men. And like, you know, it started with like, you know, the pink shirts and then, you know, fashion became a lot more popular for men. Uh, so I think like, as those things started to bridge and form together, um, at least where I live, by the time I got into photography, things kind of changed quite a bit. Um, with that being said, I think a lot of the guys that are drawn to shooting the stuff I shoot, um, they might be in that same boat, but it's really tough to tell from the photos. Yeah. Yeah. Because like, how is, you know, how do you know if what you're shooting is a reflection of how you're feeling or if it's just a, a certain aesthetic you like? Because the whole liminal space aesthetic, especially, you know, it's quite strong and it's, you know, there's a community there and it's always compelling anyway, whether you can relate to it or not. But I don't know, like just from the people I know and the people I talk to on a day-to-day basis, it's kind of interesting how I actually do really think that mental health and life struggles play a huge role in the kind of work you create. I think there is actually, in my mind at least, an interesting link there. Yeah, there's. I definitely agree with you. I definitely agree with you. Um, I, I love the looks of some of these like liminal space, background type things, like, you know, Stanley Kubrick inspired shots. Um, but I, I always wonder like, you know, what each person's uh, individual uh, take on it is. I feel like that's why we need to talk to people more, I guess. That's why we need more community. We need to kind of, we don't need to, but it's nice to understand the person behind the work because I feel like you just learn so much more about the imagery, talking to the person. Like, for instance, for you, for instance, like I never would have known that really interesting and, and very, you know, crazy and that's with your respect, like crazy backstory without having spoken to you. Like your images are, are beautiful and amazing, but like no, like knowing you as a person like that's super interesting because that makes you think of like there's so many other things that i'd be interested to talk to you about that you know could be completely different conversations that have nothing to do with photography you know i think it's kind of in my mind i feel like we all want to connect and communicate but i think we're very good at not doing that you know i agree fully i mean 
I, I, I have a lot of things to say about a lot of things and I love to listen and hear when other people talk. Uh, I think like your introvert extrovert question there. Um, so I, I, I appear as introvert when I first like, you know, meet people, especially a group of people that I don't like know yet. It's not that I'm introverted. It's that I think it's really important for me to uh, listen and kind of observe like all these different things about this person because I'm only going to say something if I think it's something that like will engage and like you know go well with that person uh, whether it's like you know a, a flat topic like talking about photos or you know beer whiskey whatever um, or and just like how they talk I'll change the way I talk with my voice with different people uh, the way I talk on the phone with different people like it, it changes a lot and sometimes one friend group is like why do you change your voice when you talk to this person it's like you know, sometimes you gotta, you know, make sure you don't like agitate someone. Uh, if I know someone comes from backgrounds where they, uh, you know, were like yelled at or abused, I'm going to try and talk more softly than perhaps on the phone with someone who's trying to buy a house or something. Um, but yeah, like uh, w when I talk and I start to engage with stuff, like it's, it's all about that. Like there's a lot of people I've, I've like known briefly and I would imagine many of them would be surprised I would remember the details I do, but uh, anyone that I've ever spoken to at any point in my life, I remember so many details about that person, like personal details. Like when people open up and tell me things about themselves, I just don't forget it. See, that's really fascinating. Cause I feel like that's really important. I feel like we live in a society where everything is very throwaway, even conversations. You know, yes. a lot of conversations are very shallow. They're very much about what can I gain from talking to this person, the transaction, the transactional value of a conversation. You know, I think that's kind of something that we've, very much at this moment in time have given up for society but i think that's that's really an interesting just a really interesting trait you have because i feel like I've, i would say i'm similar i don't know if I, i'd actually say i am the same because i feel like i talk to so many people i, I generally kind of keep track of what i say to people that i know what people say to me but i think that just shows me that you're engaged and that you want to engage with people it's not just a case of let's talk for the sake of talking it's like let's actually understand people and i've like you said that you like to listen because i kind of feel like it makes sense like knowing a bit about your history like it makes sense because you know obviously you're very observational so therefore you're going to listen because you know how to step back and take the time to observe so you know how the time take the time to step back and listen as well which is i don't think it's a trait that we see a lot nowadays i don't think because everyone wants to be in the limelight everybody wants to be at the forefront everybody wants you to look at them when actually some people just do prefer to be in the background. It's that's also quite important. We need both sides. Yeah, like I'll I'll tell anyone anything about myself or any subject. Like I have a lot of things to say about a lot of things, but I'm only going to say them if I feel the other person uh, is interested and cares what yeah. I have to say. Absolutely. Uh, otherwise, I'm not going to talk your ear off for nothing. But I, I would definitely say you're one of those people. Uh, just not even based on the conversation or the things you do but the way in which you speak and the way in which you reference other people you've talked to in those details, I would say you're definitely like one of those people. Uh, I imagine you probably also remember a lot of details uh, from things. And I, I think, I think quite a few photographers might actually uh, be like that. And uh, I mean, I think generally like this is how humans used to be. I don't think most of us were so like obsessed with the spotlight and the attention. I feel like, you know, when things really started to emerge and like, I'd say probably the 80s, when technology really started to kind of get a kickstart, more and more people like we're trying to, you know, get famous or, you know, 
date someone who had like a nice car or, you know, a nice job. And that just got like, it got less connection oriented and more spotlight and individually oriented. And, you know, that catapulted, I was born in the nineties. So I remember going to school, nobody had a phone until we got to like high school. And even then, like we had flip phones. I didn't even think I saw a touchscreen phone until grade 12. And even then it was like not an iPhone. I, most people didn't have them back then. It was like Blackberries, but um, you know, like as like, you know, Instagram and TikTok really kickstarted after I got out of high school, I feel like that just absolutely like fast forwarded everything a lot. Cause now it just feels like everyone is just doing whatever they can. You had actually, you had asked a question about uh, reels and stuff like that. So um, do you have anything you want to say before I go on about the reels? And oh, the- go right ahead. Go right ahead. Okay. So uh, I do super eight because I, I'm weird. I like weird niche things. Like, you know, if I, if I buy something, I don't want to, I don't want to buy BMW three series because almost everyone has one. I want to find something that's different. Uh, so with super eight, it's different. It's unfortunately painfully expensive. It cost me $250 to produce a three minute and 30 second cartridge. That's I know insane. it's absurd. That's insane. It's absurd. I'm about to get a little bit of a grant from my province and the Atlantic filmmakers thing locally. So it's going to ease up the costs, but uh, I do super eight because it's just like, um, it's like a real old, like throwback limiting uh, thing. Um, I don't do it for the reels. It actually looks terrible in reels because it, most of it's being cut off the detail you get in the super eight. It's best when it's oriented uh, horizontally instead of vertically. And uh, I, I really, really, really do not like the TikTok and real trend for photos because when someone posts a photo and I like it, like I, I have all the notifications on. So like I'll like stuff, but like when I really go back and browse, I'll go back on someone's profile and I'll, I'll browse and I'll scroll. But when I see something like a reel, it's like I need more than three seconds to look at your photo. I, I think I think it's like I understand they have to do it to get the view. Like I understand why they do it. I don't judge them at all. But for me, it's like, your work is too good to be in a three second clip like that. Like I understand you have to do it, but like if you post something, I want to be able to go on your Instagram and properly look at it. Even Instagram, the low resolution is limiting. So like TikTok is just like, no, <laughs> can't do it. So I have so much to say from this. It's actually pretty funny. Um, but I think the first thing I should probably say, or like the best place to start would be like, you're right, because the problem with TikTok and Instagram is that it's flattened the experience of art. It's not an ex- uh, uh, it's not an experience anymore. It's just a, a thing we do to consume media and to waste time. Because let's not lie, people, the general public, for instance, are on Instagram just to waste time. They're, they're standing in a queue. They're probably on the toilet or something. You know, they're just literally scrolling on their phones mindlessly. They're not even paying attention to what they look at. And I think unless you're purposefully looking for art or looking for something um, to kind of inspire you, Everything is very much throwaway. And it's funny, you should say you were born in the 90s. I was born in the 90s. Um, I remember the day YouTube was around. I remember the very first day of YouTube being at school. Everyone was on it. And me being like, what's this weird video software? And it, it's, it's interesting because um, how old are you, by the way? Uh, I turned 29 in like a week, two weeks. The 2nd of September, two See, weeks. That's really funny because I am 29 currently. Uh, so that's really interesting. It's, it's a funny age to be because... You remember life before technology and you remember life after yeah, technology. Yeah. The thing about technology is interesting. Like, like I've lived not a whole of my life, but you know, I've had at least a good what 14, 15 years without technology. And I've had a good almost 15 years, I guess, 
with technology. I can honestly say I'm so glad that I'm not like 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18 nowadays. I think technology has completely ruined the experience of childhood and it's completely ruined just the human experience full stop. I think it's so hard to have any kind of attention span nowadays. It's so hard to pull yourself out of the internet. Like, how would you do that? Because everything, even society as a whole, is now ingrained so deeply within the internet itself. And I kind of feel that's quite sad, which is why when people shoot film, which is why people shoot Super 8, which is why when people do stuff that seems very nostalgic and seems very physical, like that's why I think it's so important because we have to remember that things digitally are great, but that's not the only way of living. You know, things, people had careers before social media existed, for instance. You know, it's not the only thing that matters. Yeah, exactly. I think you, I think you brought up a really good word twice there. You said purpose twice. And I think that is anytime you open up your phone for anything, I, I think people should ask themselves, why are you opening up your phone? Are you opening up Instagram? Okay, what are you opening up Instagram for? Why do you have Instagram? What do you use it for? Um, I think if you're using it to, you know, look at fashion or look at your friends or look at photos, it should have a real purpose. Even if that purpose is just because you think something's funny and you want to go watch some funny videos to laugh, that's good for you. Uh, or if you want to, um, I don't know, maybe there's a celebrity that you like, uh, follow them. But I think a lot of people get into this rabbit hole where they follow, you know, these celebrities uh, and it's just like it detaches them from like what humans are supposed to be like. Not that these celebrities are not humans, but what we see from these celebrities on these platforms is, is not good. And I think also that, you know, makes art much more difficult because if you're trying to create art and you're competing with celebrities with huge platforms, um, I, would, I would probably urge most people to be very like selective about which famous people you follow and which brands you follow. Like if you follow a bunch of celebrities, try to unfollow, like try to cut that in half, try and like make sure the ratio is more balanced on what you see when you open up your, your Instagram page, because it, it's probably also not good for someone's mental health when they're constantly being peppered with people that have droves of like money or looks or whatever. Cause you know, in small doses, sure. But, if you're opening up something like that and then you're going to a nine to five, I think that just completely crushes any motivation, whether they realize it or not. I also think uh, a lot a lot of the dudes, and I know some of the photographer dudes do this because I'm nosy. I like to look at this stuff, but people got to stop following some of these Instagram models. I think it's really, really, really unhealthy. And another thing too, not to go into many different topics here, but um Back to like the the women in photography, uh, I, I've spoken to quite a few women in photography uh, about this, and uh, and the women with film page, their big thing is they don't post selfies, and I think it's really important that they don't do that uh, because I find if you're a woman who's perceived as conventionally attractive and you have a lot of photos of yourself, the types of followers you're going to attract are sometimes going to reduce your value to how you look even if you take excellent photos and you're not really left with the choice because to grow the following you have to post those photos and then women who feel that they are not attractive even if they are uh who don't post the photos they they don't get the same following because i mean instagram prioritizes faces that's why you see like you know, celebrities and stuff so much but it's really hard to get a foothold uh in that uh in that field and uh, a lot of the women, they feel 
like they have to do this. And if they don't feel like they're attracted, they feel like their art's not worth what it is because you know, the likes and the numbers. And yeah, I think it's a very toxic social media environment we live in for a lot of days. And uh, I think it subtly presents itself to artists and photographers regularly. And uh, I think the best way to help each other out with that, whether you're a photographer or not a photographer, is to just try and cut back on the amount of your social media use that is used for things that are not intentional and cut back on the celebrities and the, you know, the ultra wealthy or the models, the, the unattainables, if you will. So again, there's so much I could say with that because it opens up so many different topics and these are definitely topics I'd love to talk to you about, like delve into further in the future, like for sure, because there's so much to talk about there. Like, there's so much, there's just so much to, to like, um, yeah, just so much there's just so much to open up and there's just so many different tangents that you can go on the different kind of ideas and thoughts and and kind of like you know important conversations to have as well like that's the thing but um one thing i wanted to say like i think i don't want to tell people who to follow and who not to follow but i would yeah, ask people to think why am i following this person like why are celebrities important and why do you want to spend your time as i always say to myself like, why do you want to spend your time watching somebody else live their life when you're not living yours? You know, like, don't be sold somebody else's dream when you could be taking the time to make your own happen. Like, it's so easy to watch somebody else and want what they have, but you're not in that position. That's not you. You have to remember you're only responsible for your life, not anybody else's. You can watch people drive around in, fancy cars have the nicest clothes travel to the most exotic places there's nothing wrong with that and there's nothing wrong with wanting to aspire to be like that but you will never be that and i think that's the distinction you have to make it's particularly with something like photography where you look at the idea of like somebody might have the best gear doesn't mean you're gonna have the best gear somebody might be taking photos in a location you want to visit doesn't mean you'll ever get to visit that place like for instance iceland would be an amazing place to go to but it's also like you can shoot great images around you. You don't have to go to fancy places to create great images. You know, I used to really, really think that if I lived somewhere else, if I lived in America, for instance, my images would be great. I'd, you know, be so much more popular and successful because American aesthetics are, are super fancy and all the rage. You know, there's a huge trend for that. And there's just a huge kind of um, desire for that, I guess, really. Which is something I definitely want to talk about later on for sure. But I'm kind of like, I think really it comes down to escapism. I think we all like to escape at the end of the day. Like we're all trying to escape our own lives and kind of, it's, it's weird. It, it's, it's interesting for me. And I think you'd probably share the same sentiment because you were born at the same time, but it's like, we all live two lives. We live one in real world and we live one online and they don't connect whatsoever. You can be whoever you want to be online, but that still doesn't mean that you're not the same person you are when you're not you know, if that makes sense. I yeah, don't know. Well, I, I also want to say everything that you just said after what I just said, yeah. like that is literally the exact intention of what I said. Like you yeah. took it exactly where I, where I intended like <laughs> uh, with the connection. But yeah, you're right. I mean, you're right. I think, we have, I think we have a very similar ways of looking at things because I feel like I agree. Like, don't be wrong. Like, I think I personally do not care for celebrities. I'm not interested. I don't follow any celebrities. I, I'm not. I'm just not interested to be very honest the people can live their lives however they want but i just feel like being famous i'd rather be known 
See, I'd rather be famous for being, I'd, no, I'd rather be well-known for impacting people in a positive way than be famous for nothing. You know, I'm very lucky. Like, I don't find money to be the pinnacle of my value. You know, the conversations I have are much more important than the money I make from the fine fruit bowl, for instance. You know, I don't make, I hardly make any money from it. And that's fine because for me and the way things are, like, that's not what it's about. It's about the conversations, about meeting people. It's about sharing great art. It's about talking to people. It's about, you know, there are there are things that are more important than money. And it's a shame we live in a society where money is kind of like the ultimate, which is, you know, unhelpful for many people because they don't have that, you know? I think the money drives the fame too. Like, it's, I think it's better to be respected. Like, if money was not a thing, would someone rather be respected or famous? Because the fame loses its value if it's not connected. I think, like, for me, just, I think also, without going off too much of a tangent, and without getting too personal, but, like, I... I came from a very low income background. So the value of money to me is so different to people who may have had a different lifestyle. Like I, you know, I feel guilty about going on holiday because I'm like, that's money I could have saved or that's money that, you know, somebody else could have spent on food or whatever. But at the same time, it's like, you don't miss what you don't have. And if, you, if you're raised with not a lot of money, I think you kind of look at life very differently. Like to me, of course, having money is nice. Of course, having fancy stuff is nice, but it's not necessary. It's necessary for your bills to be paid. It's necessary for you to have food. It's necessary for you to have a few small comforts of like going out and like being able to do photography, for instance, is a luxury. Like it's not something that we need to do, but it's a luxury. And, and I don't know, I just wish people were just a little more grateful for the smaller things. You know, I think too many people are invested in, this is a completely off topic to anything to do with photography, but this is cool. But, you know, it's kind of, people are so invested in just this idea of, of living in such a, just like a fancy way or like, you know, even stuff like Costa Coffee, like you don't need Costa Coffee, you know, it's just not a necessity, mm-hmm. but we've, we've, we've become kind of desensitized that like, oh, you must do this. You must do that. If you don't go on holiday every year, what's wrong with you? It's like, I've never been abroad. And I'm almost thirsty. I'm going to go abroad this year because I finally was like, I need to go abroad. But when I tell people that, people are like, well, why not? Or how not? And it's like, do you not realize that costs money? Like, I'm the same. I have not done anything. You know, like like you're lucky you had two parents who could afford to pay for you to go abroad. Like I didn't have that when I grew up. You know, you people forget not everybody lives the same way. Nobody has the same access to things, you know? And it, it, it frustrates me sometimes because I see, I know like there's people I know who are like 18, 19 and they have literally anything they want. And it's like, you don't understand how lucky you are because not everybody has that. And they, they'll moan because like, this is so off topic, but it's fine. But they'll moan because like, you know, maybe, you know, they couldn't go out with their friends or whatever, or like, you know, they couldn't buy some designer goods or whatever. And it's like, you should be grateful that you have parents who are willing to pay that for you, who can pay that for you. Hey, you, like how you're, you're lucky that you have parents that have a job, you know, because if you're in a situation your parents didn't have a job, they're not something you'd ever attain, have or be able to attain. So I just feel like people need to remember, like, not everybody has the same access to things. And sorry, this is very off topic, but it's kind of like, I don't know. I just wish people were a little bit more, I don't know. I just wish people were a bit more caring. You know, they, were so, they weren't so wrapped up in themselves that they have to remember that everybody else also does exist. Because as you said earlier, we are definitely at a point, and especially affects the arts as well, that it's all like, look at me, look at me, look at me, look at me. It's all very about attention. And it's like, it's it's not all about attention. It's, it's also about 
giving back. You know, you have to also, I don't know, you have to also be, I don't know. Okay, I don't want to go with that. Anyway, ignore that, scrap that. I don't want to go with that. But I don't know. It's something I'm passionate about. I just don't like people who moan about stuff that just don't, that doesn't matter. You know, I think all that stuff does relate to to uh, photography. I feel like none of us make enough money to uh, really have the freedom to appreciate mm. things in art as much as we probably would otherwise. That's true. But then I also feel like if you did have the money, would you spend it? Oh, yeah, that's the other thing. I mean, I feel like a lot of people would rather spend that money on like a Balenciaga sweater with a bunch of holes in it. Uh, but ultimately, um, I think like every person I know that has, uh, you know, the money to like, you know, buy everything they need. Yeah. Like, you know, these people, I know people, for example, they own really, really nice watches. They have, uh, you know, really nice BMW, but they're not buying like, uh, you know, they could go and buy a Ferrari, but instead they have a bunch of art pieces. So yeah. those people are out there. And I, I think there's like a certain threshold. Once people have like the things that they really, really want, that they feel good about, then they'll start buying art. But unfortunately, you know, even if you have a low threshold, it's hard to meet that these days. Like a lot yeah. of people would buy art if they could just afford to pay their rents and some food and buy some clothes they want. Yeah. 100%, like oh, a 1000% agree with that. And I think it, it's kind of funny how it's also, in, it's a slightly off topic, but it's also something that, that somebody posted ages ago on their stories that I saw and I actually screenshot it. But it was a tweet from somebody, I don't know who the person was, but they're saying how it's funny that people who are rich that don't need to actually worry about money would always turn to art as a form of making more money. Like it's funny how, like the thing about artists, like there's three things you need to be a successful artist in my opinion, and that is time, space, and money. You know, it's like if you lack one of those things, you're gonna, you know, you're not be able, you won't be able to reach the, the full potential of your work. And I think it's a shame that there isn't more funding for artists, and it's a shame that there isn't more opportunities, there aren't more opportunities for artists, especially photographers. I think photography. That's is such a good much, quote. Huh? Just before that quote gets lost, like that was a great quote that you just said. <laughs> the, <laughs> I get the thing that photographers need time, money, and space. It, it, good. It's, it's just a, it's an observation, I guess, more than anything that I've kind of come to because, you know, I talk to a lot of artists. I, I kind of, I even just in myself and the thing, it, it's funny because it's just like, it's like, you know, you look at a camera and it's like 3,000 pounds and you think to yourself, cool, when I have 3,000 pounds, I'll buy that. But like when you have 3,000 pounds, you don't buy that because you've got other things to spend that money on. It's kind of like just, I don't know, it's, it, it's weird because it's like you can have, mm, I don't know if this is a good thing to say or not, but I feel like, I don't know. Okay, right. Yeah, I'm going to go on a ramble about something that we don't need to talk about right now. Um, anyway, let's get back into your work. I do apologize. So, actually, okay. So, talking about, or at least kind of jumping off the discussion of the idea of reality and the mm -hmm. idea of kind of escapism, especially. Like, do you consider your work to be an exploration or escapism? Sometimes it's escapism for sure. Uh, you know, if I'm going through a stressful day or not feeling great, um, usually I can't shoot if I'm not feeling great. But if I'm stressed and I force myself to go out, uh, it's escapism. Now, uh, probably not a super popular thing to say, but, you know, usually I will smoke quite a bit of uh, weed. And uh, if I have to drive, I obviously won't really do that. But uh, usually someone else will drive, uh, in which case I'll also drink as well. Um, I'm not addicted to anything else. Like, I always, yeah. like... If I, if I smoke weed three, four days in a row, I will not do it three, four days in a row. Same with drinking. Like I, I'm fortunate I don't get addicted, but I use that because it just helps me like unwind a little bit, just relax a little bit. Uh, cause my lifestyle is too stressful right now to really, I mean, I didn't shoot at all in the month of August. I almost quit photography in August. That's why I had everything archived. Yeah. Oh, is that why I was, 
yeah, it was just like one thing after another, whether it was like a work stressor, a finance stressor, and it just, all that stuff just kept piling on. And I was like, I was like, all right, I'm going to archive everything. I'm going to stop using social media for a bit and uh, we'll see what happens. So you live in Canada, right? Mm-hmm. So that's interesting because I actually assumed very stupidly, well, not very stupidly, but probably very silly. Is that a word? I don't know. But I assumed you were from America because your work has a, a particularly, or at least a kind of American aesthetic, if you understand what I mean. Um, and I'm kind of curious as kind of like what your thoughts are on that, because there is a huge fascination with the American dream and the idea of America being this very fascinating, wide open place of fantasy, I guess you could say. And kind of like, what do you think about that? And is that something you actually care for in, to, to present in your work? Yeah, so uh, definitely have that same sort of like, you know, south of the border but i've never been to the u.s um the u.s i find fascinating i'd love to go through the u.s and shoot a lot and not just places like california or new york i mean i want to shoot like or chicago i want to shoot like you know random towns in wisconsin random towns in arkansas like i want to see like all of it because that's the other thing like you know you go to the u.s all the cool stuff has been shot basically a thousand times yeah so, you know, it'd be cool to go there with like, you know, a set of eyes from someone who doesn't live there and try and find something. Uh, same with one of those people where I live. But uh, locally, I mean, I think what makes Canada cool to shoot, at least where I live, uh, is probably the wildlife. Like if you're a wildlife photographer and you haven't been to New Brunswick, you're missing out on probably the best hidden gem. Our landscapes too are absolutely killer uh, and a very short drive. I mean, that's the other thing. New Brunswick, you can drive eight hours and still be in New Brunswick. Like that's how big our province is. Like if you want to drive from the north to the south, it's like a 12-hour drive. Um, meanwhile, I can drive two hours to the east and get to a place called Nova Scotia. Nova Scotia has uh, something called the Cabot Trail. Uh, a lot of excellent photographers uh, in Nova Scotia as well. Um, PEI is another one. PEI is kind of interesting. Um, I'll get into that. But Nova Scotia is really, really cool if you're a wildlife photographer, landscape photographer. And you haven't been to Canada, you've got to go to New Brunswick, you got to check out Fundy, uh, you got to check out St. Andrews, uh, all those places. And then you also want to check out uh, Nova Scotia for the Cabot Trail. But I wouldn't rule out PEI because PEI is less than an hour and a half away from me. Uh, you take a bridge, you go over, the, it's called the Confederation Bridge, nothing to do with the US. Uh, you go over there and then it's just a small little island. You can drive around the entire island in, in, in a day. Uh, it's it's mostly farming and agriculture. Uh, they've got some pretty good photographers there too, but it's just a very unique, different, and minimalist type landscape. So if someone's into minimalist photography, whether you're doing color, black and white, uh, PEI in the summer, or uh, I don't know much about farming, but whenever the crops get cool, definitely a cool place to visit. See, that's fascinating. It takes 12 hours because I always forget how small the UK is compared to places such as America and Canada. Because here, like, I don't even know how long it would take you to drive from one end of England to the other, but it's not, it won't take that long. You know, if I drive two hours, I'd have gone through so many different cities. You know, it's it's insane. Like, that just makes no sense to me. Like, how you can live. It's like Texas, for instance. You know, like, four hours in Texas driving, you're still in Texas. It makes no sense. Like, that's insane. Just the vastness is insane. And it's, it's actually really funny because I was talking to an American artist called Trills a couple uh, weeks ago, actually. I said to him, I don't know if people are aware, but here in the UK, it's cheaper for me to get a flight to Europe than it is to get on a train to go somewhere else in the UK. Yeah, that sounds about right. I could literally go 
the price for me to get to uh, to get to Toronto is at best three hundred dollars. Seven hundred dollars, I can get to Scotland. It's, it's it's insane. Like it's absolutely insane. It's bizarre. So it's just like if I want to get on the train to to Devon, it's going to cost like three hundred quid. Like either both, either way, it's like three hundred quid, two hundred trillion quid. If I want to get on a plane to Spain, fifty quid maybe. And it's just like that makes no sense whatsoever. And it's it's weird because one thing I would love to do in the future because I don't drive because I'm an idiot. Um, is I would love to tour the UK and just take pictures around the UK in different places, but I'm going to have to save a lot of money to do that. That's going to be expensive. I'd, actually, it would be cheaper for me to literally fly over to America and travel around America. It would probably be cheaper than it would be to do it in the own country that I live in, which is pretty funny. <laughs> the timing will work out well, though. I mean, you'll probably meet some pretty cool people by the time you get to the point where you're doing the traveling, where the traveling will be way better because you'll be able to meet up with all the different people. So what is interesting that I actually really want to do in it, well, there's two things I really want to do in a few years. Actually, there's quite a lot of things I want to do in a few years. I have a lot of really cool plans for the future. But one thing I would love to do is come to go down to Oregon in America because I know a lot of photographers from Oregon who live close to each other but don't but never meet up, which makes no sense to me. I'm just like, why would you not do that if you literally live within 20 minutes drive from each other and you all have cars? That makes no sense. But um, I'd love to go down there because like the sense of community there is, is so good. Um, and also, I'd love to create a photo book. Um, I've said this, I think I've said this publicly. If I don't, I have said it publicly. So in the next three years or so, I really want to create like a photo book for photographers because I meet a lot of photographers. I know a lot of photographers. And one thing everybody wants is their work in print, but they can't always afford to have their work in print. Not everyone can afford to have a book published of their work. So I was like, well, why don't I just create a photo book with everybody's work in? Have like some kind of annual or something. Um, so it has everybody's work together. Like that could be really cool. You know, something I'm thinking about is I don't know when I'm going to do it. I don't know how much it's going to cost. I have no experience with any of that kind of stuff. So it's something I really want to work towards. That. I think it'd be really great. It'd be, it'd be a great way for me to get back to the people I've spoken to, yourself, for instance, or just, you know, people who want to have their work published. I think it's, it'd be really, it should be a fun experience, I think. I don't know. If that's something you'll be interested in in the future, let me know and I'll put your work into it. I don't know. I like this idea of, as we think, as I mentioned earlier, and as we've spoke about previously, like just the idea of bringing stuff into the physical world from the digital space. Because I think it's important to remember that having your work physically and having things in your hand is also important as just having your work online. You know, I think it's it's so easy just to give yourself up, or give yourself over to the algorithm. I think it's very easy to do that. You know. Anyways, so you're dead more so. That concludes the first part of my conversation with photographer Ryan Taylor. Thank you very much for listening. If you have any questions or comments about it, please send me an email at theflyingfruitbowl at gmail.com or please get in touch via social media sites such as Instagram and Twitter. The Flying Fruit Bowl podcast can now be found in a variety of sites such as Spotify, Apple Music and YouTube. If you like the show, please consider rating, reviewing, sharing or subscribing on any of those platforms to help spread the word and garner more attention. Also, please don't forget to check out theflyingfruitbowl.co.uk for daily inspiration and written interviews. And if you're a creative, please get in touch for a chance to be featured or interviewed. We now also have a Patreon page if you'd like to support the platform further. Tears start for more about, and more information can be found over at patreon.com forward slash theflyingfruitbowl. Additionally, 
We also have a PayPal if the donations are not your thing. If you'd like to donate to the Flying Fruit Bowl, I should include a link to our PayPal in the show notes. Once again, thank you very much for listening to the episode today. Until next time, folks, please stay safe.